up till now or any uh, issues with the novel right uh, yeah. so uh, we are almost at the end of the first part and i'm sorry that i'm doing it very slowly because i'm reading it uh, rather differently from uh, what i've read and what other people may have said okay because i'm taking up the novel again after many many years right and after reading mansfield park and uh, all those other kinds of things yeah and this idea of a woman writing yeah and the idea of uh, is jane austen a feminist or is not a feminist right is she a romantic or not a romantic i think that's the focus we have to be aware of right and uh, we are talking about a time when she's over there in the romantic period right but at the same time it's a question of saying well uh, do we really think that she's romantic okay or maybe we get snatches a little snatches here and there which point to some kind of a romantic uh, streak in the novelist right so normally you don't have uh, unless a person of course when we look at romanticism uh, they were not called romantics themselves or uh, people like wordsworth and coleridge didn't really call themselves romantics right i think we already are aware of that story but what is interesting is when we are talking about this novel it's set in the romantic age right and is written by a, uh, a writer who was in the romantic age right yeah and what is interesting is it's also talking about reading right at various levels and that's what we've already done priya how do you read uh, uh, do, do people read or not right first that's the most important thing right and that's a kind of a big sociological fact which uh, unites and give definition to the culture of people right what have you read right or how do you read right i think uh, when we looked at uh this movie in the literary society called a namesake one of the issues was reading yeah now we're talking about reading cultures and we're talking about thinking cultures right and of course here is a reading culture right and of, and we must remember that uh the enlightenment philosopher voltaire says that unless we have a reading culture we can't have a thinking culture right now uh, that's something that we have to look at and be very careful about right because uh, at one level this is cultural formation that is taking place in england right and it's not the top elite kind of people right but it's more middle class people or upper middle class people who are writing these novels and uh talking with some authority right and uh, the idea of a, a world that is changed perhaps happened uh, very very slowly right the idea of a democracy or a world changing and the idea of uh democracy happening right uh, did the english really need it or did they not right that's a question and maybe you can help me in answering that question right yeah because slowly what's happening is there is a hierarchy right there is reading yeah there is this uh, sophistication of culture which 
seems to have taken place with a vast amount of wealth that the English derive from the colonies, right? So that's a charge against them. Uh, so we are talking about different kinds of external factors that shape something called uh, a community and we are talking about a very small community, right, uh, of people, right? Uh, so it is a kind of community which is not even the size of Gujarat, right? And they are actually writing about themselves, okay? And we talked about this idea of the anthropological gaze and the uh, uh, the cultural studies gaze, right? Yeah. So one is the anthropological gaze, which is looking at other people. Yeah, I said this long ago, right in the beginning of the course, right? When we are talking about fiction, right? And we and talking about this novel. So the, the and we talked about the travel novel when we talked about Gulliver's Travels, right? Yeah, so when we go from the anthropological gaze, this is a self-critical gaze for the British readers, right? It's also self-critical for us, okay, and a cultural kind of gaze for us because a lot of our own cultures have oh, this post-colonial culture which is elite, right? Uh, and has been derived from a lot of practices uh, uh, that you find in the book, right? It's almost like looking at it and saying, well, it's just because of the British that we are into all this kind of culture, right? Yeah, and people who actually have been into what you call reading. It's not without reading, okay? So we're talking about an elite set of people who are perhaps in the Indian uh, military, which was the royal um, kind of military at that point of time, right? And then slowly get uh, it becomes the Indian army, right? And it's still very colonial in many of the ways that they operate. Yeah, they still have uh, this idea of the 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 very very westernized, right? And uh, you you see that when you see all the interviews on television, whether it's Sam Sam Manekshaw or uh, any other kind of officer, right? Yeah, it's not that I am saying that, well, we are Indians and they are Westerners and we have to have a thrust in them and we don't want Westernization. No, that's something that is a part of our heritage, a part of our culture, which we can't throw out, right? We might not like it, right? And of course, today we are becoming Westernized in ways that we don't want to be because today, actually it's Americanized, not even Westernized, but we are talking about uh, yeah, and please, uh, by the way, I put up on your group uh, Akhil Bilgrami's lecture and please come and ask questions about uh, modernity because he's talking about uh, modernity, right? Yeah, and uh, it's a kind of lecture that nobody must miss, right? Uh, so that's all I have to say. And of course, Akhil Bilgrami is uh, studied in Elphinstone College, Bombay and then uh, went uh, abroad to study in the UK and uh, I think now he's uh, in a U American university, right? Yeah, but he's a philosopher, uh, so you can, and he comes to Baroda just because of COVID, he's probably not come this time, yeah? Okay, uh, sorry for the interruption, but uh, let's go on, right? And uh, here we are talking about the, the societal formation that takes place in elite societies in India 
or the idea of refashioning uh, the self in a post-colonial mode, right? And the questions that we need to ask are, what do the Indians think, right? Do the Indians think that the British, British are never going to go away, right? That's something that is important, right? Uh, they've, in some ways, we've accepted the, the, the coloniality and the hegemony of the British ruling over India, right? Many people of uh, a senior generation of mine who had actually seen the British, right, would say, well, we don't have anything like that, right? And that's a hangover from the, this what we call the post-colonial hangover, the colonial hangover actually, right? So the colonial hangover is, well, uh, India can't do anything, right? So we see that university decaying, well, when the British were here, everything was fine, right? Now the question is, why don't you take responsibility? You've got 70 years of independence. What have you been doing, right? The British have not been here. You have to take charge of your own life and live your life, right? It's the pronouncement of Nietzsche when Nietzsche said, God is dead and let's be happy that God is dead, right? When Nietzsche says, let's be happy that God is dead, he is saying that, well, the old human being is over. Take responsibility for yourself, right? Yeah, so the human being has changed and the human being needs to take responsibility for himself and that, unless that human being does that, we don't reach anywhere, right? So that's as far as we are talking, yeah, and that's as far as we are going when it comes to this idea of uh, the, and of course, uh, that's one, that's the political, that's open, right? But then this is more subtle, right? When culture comes in and people adopt culture, right, unless you're very aware of what's happening to you, right? Uh, these are ways that subtly change, right? Uh, when I was teaching, uh, I, I think the Allied people, right? We're talking, yeah, I have to, I have to teach a, a prose course to them, right? Uh, yeah, when I was talking to them, I was talking about the rhythms of prose getting into your system, right? Now that seems to happen only after a long period of time. Right? Pro and that's why we have to read. Right? So one is we are reading, but then the question is what happens to us culturally? Right? How do we imagine ourselves? How do we refashion ourselves? Right? And this process is very slow. Right? Because post colonialism is not something that you can just impose upon. It's not India walking into Kashmir and abolishing 370. Right? And we know what the effect is. Nothing works, nothing has changed, right? We think that we've won a great victory, right? But uh, we, uh, yeah, that's what some of the people think over here in this part of the country, right? Or maybe in other parts of the country too, right? But the question is, when you talk about post-coloniality, uh, that's not it at all, right? Because post-coloniality means a slow working of things, a slow change which is happening and which might take uh, at least 200 or 300 years, right? Yeah, so uh, if you think that you can con convert people and convert their minds by atrocities and violence, right? And by having a military presence, right? Uh, that is not convincing, right? Yeah, so at one level, you have the very subtle kinds of ways that uh, post-coloniality is operating on the Indian mind and the novel 
is one of the things that does it, right? The second thing is, we talked about Jameson's argument and the whole kind of argument with, uh, uh, what's the name? Ah, I forgot his name. Yeah, if I get it back, I'll give it, uh, get it to you, uh, right? This is the Pakistani and uh, he is a Pakistani Marxist, right? And he actually uh, writes back to Jameson, right? And takes him up and, uh, I forgot his name, I'll get it. Yeah, Ajay Samad, right? Yeah, so he is the one who is actually taking up Jameson and saying that, well, you're talking about the novel and you're talking about the nation and no novel, no nation can exist without a novel, right? And you're talking about uh, these kind of things from a Marxist perspective. And he says, how many nations do you have in the United States? Yeah, because Jameson is an American Marxist, right? Which are a different kind of breed of Marxists, right? And of course, uh, our colleague who retired uh, yesterday uh, or day before, uh, Bela has done a PhD on Jameson, right? Yeah, so the question is, uh, Jameson is the very, uh, the American Marxists are a different breed of Marxists, like the English Marxists are a different breed of Marxists, and everywhere you go, you have different breeds of Marxists, right? Yeah, as you already know, perhaps, right? So, uh, the American Marxist, uh, first of all, it's very difficult to talk about an American Marxist, right? It seems like a contradiction in terms, right? Because uh, this is, capitalism has gone to the roots of everything, right? And we talk about a novelist like Steinbeck, right? Who uh, many people don't even want to recommend on syllabi because they think that Canary Row, Grapes of Rocks and all this kind of Real, uh, really superb American novels are not recommended, not to be recommended after the McCarthy witch hunt that they had, right? So you might uh, think that all that is very politicized, right? But at the same time, what happens with a novel which looks very innocent, right? So when we're talking about the politics of what is going on over here and the politics of the novel, right, we can see that slowly the culture is being influenced by the novel. Yep. The, I, of course, what is also happening is the Indian nation is influenced by the novel, right? And when you have Anand Mutt and the, um, uh, what's this called, Vande uh, Mataram and all those kind of things, right? Uh, that's a kind of, uh, there's a problem there because some people think that it's Bengali nationalism, right? And not Indian nationalism. and. We still in India are not resolved over here because we have uh, different sub-nationalisms, right? And of course many people get very angry and irritated with me when I use the word sub-nationalism, uh, which is okay, right? And uh, they would say, well, we are talking about something called contested nationalism, right? Because is Gujarati nationalism Indian nationalism, right? Or uh, Malayali nationalism, Indian nationalism, or Bengali or Rajasthani, or any state, right? You can ask about, especially when you have a regional uh, language novel, right? Whether it's Malayalam, or whether it's Bengali, or whether it's Hindi, right? So these are different nations, right? Looking at Hobbes' theory of the idea of the nation, right? So Hobbes is talking about when you have a nation, you have to have one kind of language, right? Yeah, and that's the idea of the nation 
they were known nations, right? When Hobbes was writing, in the way we know them today, right? Yeah, so you have uh, uh, real problems over there, right? So, and of course, you've already read St. John, and St. John is talking the language post Hobbes, right? Yeah, and uh, that's as brilliantly as Shaw does it in St. John, right? He's taking something that's happened, and that's what we call anachronism in drama. He's taking something that happens afterwards, and I'm sure you know all the, the kinds of debates that you have over there. And of course, Shaw is doing something brilliant with St. John, where he's actually giving her the language of modernity, right? In uh, the idea of the nation, right? Because the nation happens to be a modern Western concept, right? Which uh, we have to be aware of, right? And of course, many people like Benedict Anderson and all the other people are actually associating the formation or the notion of a nation or what we call imagined communities, right? Yeah, uh, these are, of course, uh, he locates it to Latin America. Hmm? Yeah, so that's uh, as important as it gets. Right. Okay, um, yeah, so uh, is that good enough, right? So now we are talking about nation formation, right? And culture studies, and we're talking about the novel, right? And we looked at all the kind of social formations and the practices, right? You must also be aware of a man called um, Michel de Sertu, right? Who is not quite Foucauldian, he's talking about ordinary people and what they do with their lives, right? And how do they make their lives in the way that they make them, right? Yeah? And with, without this idea of state power, bureaucratic power, and all those kind of things, right? Now, if you look at that, how do the ordinary people of Britain make their lives, right? So that's something that we need to think about, yeah? And that's why it's called Practices of Everyday Life, and please read it. Uh, if we have the lockdown broken down, then maybe we can sit together one day and read some portions of uh, Michel de Serpe, right? Yeah, and he's uh, about the time of Derrida and Foucault and all those kind of people, yeah? And uh, we're talking about, and he, he's talking about time and space, right? Which we are also doing over here when uh, this question of walking down, right? This is a practice that takes place after the English come in, right? The whole idea of the evening walk, right? It becomes a practice because in England, that's something that's very important, right? Uh, in fact, in the other novel of Jane Austen, that's uh, Vansfield Park, right? They talk about horse riding, yeah? And horse riding is an exercise uh, that people have to indulge in because they're normally locked in their houses in England, right? Yeah, we all, in the lockdown, how do you exercise? That's a question, right? And uh, if you know, uh, the English houses are not huge houses, right? Uh, in India, of course, the idea of the huge English bungalow is probably not really English, but it's probably Portuguese, right? Yeah, uh, that's, you still have all those huge kinds of palatial uh, houses in the south, right? Uh, uh, I'm not very sure whether the English had such huge houses, right? Because if you go to Wordsworth's house, you'll see 
uh, that it's a very small little place, right? And you, you sometimes wonder how did 13 children fit into that room, right? Yeah, they definitely didn't sleep on the ground, right? They must have had beds. And how did 13 children fit into that little room, right? So when you go to England, go to Dovecot, that's, yeah, and go and see it, right? Yeah, so you'll find, uh, and of course, what's interesting about that house is that the river Y runs under the house, right? And that room is terribly cold, right? Uh, now, of course, I don't know how they heated it up those days or whether they had heating, probably not, right? Not for the rooms, right? You'd only have the living room heated up with the fire, right? And we're talking about that kind of a situation and that kind of house and we need to know the social history of the place, otherwise we can't get our literature, right? So one of the things that we're talking about is we're talking about the idea of the walk and how the walk becomes a device in the novel, right? The walk becomes a way of getting intimate with people, right? Uh, now in chapter 13 you have the scene where they all put into a coach, right? Yeah, uh, a carriage where Knightley and uh, what's her name, Harriet, they, they're actually trying to arrange. Yeah, and actually that's what I wanted to talk about. The whole idea of the arrangement, right? Uh, which is uh, trying to say that, well, we choose our friends, yeah? And we have different kinds of friends, but we need to have companionability, right? Yeah? And the idea is, how do we get companions who, if you're throwing a party, or if you're going to meet somebody, and that's when they have the dinner, right? Then the question is, how do you arrange your party? Who do you call for your party, right? Now, these are questions many of you would have experienced. These are issues that take place even today, right? So when you talk about a party, unless it's a family party, right? Uh, and the family party, if one person, at least in, in my community, if even one person is not called by mistake, then there's a hue and cry, right? You don't call one person for a wedding and invitations have to be given to, I don't understand this and I, I just don't understand my community, right? Because invitations have to be given to everybody. Right? Yeah, and that's an old tradition. Right? And uh, uh, in fact, my mother should tell us that uh, they still have a signature when the invitations were delivered. That's before you have postal invitations, etc. Now people post the invitations. Right? Uh, so you had somebody to, you had to sign for the, uh, that you've received the invitation. Right? Now, if there were no three invitations, because it was my gra great grandmother, there was an aunt, and then was my uh, grandfather's family, right? So all the three, if there were no three invitations, they would say, don't sign and don't accept it, right? Now, of course, I belong to a family which is interesting in as much as they are all, uh, well, it's a community where everybody is almost related to everybody else, right? And that's why there's so much of animosity, right? Yeah, because here that is not the case, right? But some of the things that we do when you throw a party, right, or when you invite somebody, okay, is you find that they're actually grouping people into sets, right, because they're talking about having a nice conversation, right, 
and this is something that's important, right? Because when you look at Isabel, uh, that's in chapter 12 maybe, or 11 or 12, whenever she comes in, right? Uh, what does she talk? How does she talk, right? That's important, right? And she, and most of these talks, most of these family gatherings, and most of the social gatherings that we find over here, today would be called small talk, right? Yeah, and the idea of the conversation becomes very important, right? So when we are talking about a conversation, the conversation becomes important and when we are looking at how the conversation goes, right? This is something that we've learned about, right? How do you converse with somebody? How do you handle a conversation, right? So that's what the novel is also teaching us, subtly or otherwise, right? There's this kind of social formation, right? Now you can be a nationalist and say, well, I want to reject it, but you can't do that because you've accepted uh, other uh, kinds of bits and pieces of British culture, right? You can't throw it out, right? It's like when uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken happened to hit India and many people said, well, of course, I've not eaten Kentucky Fried Chicken up till now, right? Because I, I ate a, a burger in Lancaster, uh, a McDonald's burger. I don't even want to go near McDonald's, it was so horrible, right? Yeah, but most of, uh, most of the people think that it's very important to eat Kentucky Fried Chicken and all those kind of uh, real American hardcore capitalist kind of uh, marketing gimmicks, right? So because of that, they eat all these things, right? And one of my friends would say, well, just because we eat Kentucky Fried Chicken, it doesn't mean that we are getting a globalized or Americanized or Westernized, right? And then, uh, of course, then I was a math student, right? And when we had all these culture studies debates, right? And I was talking to an old uh, German, uh, German in as much as he's pa of Parsi origin. He's got a strange name called Nicholson, right? And uh, he's been brought up in German, right? So, uh, and of course, in Darjeeling and German, right? So. He was saying, well, you can't get one aspect of culture and say that we don't want all the rest of it, right? You can't take the idea of nationalism, the idea of democracy, the idea of a modern uh, Western economic system, a modern polity of governance, right? And not say, and you can't keep your uh, culture aloof from all this, right? Yeah, and that of course, is before our globalization and liberalization happened, right? Yeah, uh, so this is about 91, 92, yeah, 92, so uh, globalization and liberalization were just beginning to happen. And I remember Manmohan Singh giving his lecture on the TV, right? And, uh, and I think we didn't even have a color TV, right? Because it was still Durdashan, right? And he says, well, the changes that we brought about in India are not even anything at all, right? Because you have other places in the world where globalization has come to a great extent, right? So when we look at that debate and we're looking at what is going on over here, right? The question is, uh, at that point of time, people, uh, for, for people in the city that I lived in, right? They actually said, well, uh, let's meet. Most of the young people wanted to meet at McDonald's or Kentucky Fried Chicken or Dosa Diner. Dosa Diner was a, a kind of a, a chain which has disappeared, right? 
and all those kind of things were happening. Those, those are dynamics was, was much later, right? After globalization had already settled, right? But what is interesting is uh, the, the notion that uh, I am, my culture is not going to be touched by eating Kentucky Fried Chicken or my culture is not going to be touched by eating pizzas, uh, American kind of pizzas, okay, Domino's, whatever that uh, brand is, right? So, and of course, the culture has changed, right? The culture has changed because it's almost become a norm that people dine out on Saturday and Sunday, which was not the case, right? So the question is, what happens with cultural change, whether it's a novel, or it's a pizza, or it's fried chicken, or it's a pair of jeans, right? How does culture alter, right? And when we are actually looking at the novel, right, what we have over here is we are actually talking about uh, this is for their own culture, right? This is talking about how do people behave, and this is a sociological kind of novel talking about uh, the culture of a, peop uh, a small town very near to a big city, right? Yeah, and very near to this uh, city of London, okay, which has got a long history, right? And what is interesting about talking about these uh, people who are living here, which is a small community of what we might call elite people, right? We have a mention which we talked about of a poor family, right? But poverty has not been shown to us. Yeah? Yes or no? Po poverty hasn't been shown to us in its gruesomeness, right? We'll have to wait for Dickens to show us poverty and the effects of poverty. Right in England and in London, right? So, and the look at uh, the idea of crime and crime among the poor people, right? All that thing Dickens will do for us, right? But over here, that doesn't happen, right? And when we when we read literature, we also read into culture, right? And that's something that we have to be very aware of and very conscious about, right? And of course, you have uh, the notion of uh, culture, right? And how culture slowly gets transformed. Culture doesn't happen in a jiffy, right? And you can't think that we are we're going to have Kashmir for ourselves, and that's kind of uh, celebration and chest thumping that a lot of people have tried to show, right? Yeah. Uh, but but you have people who resist, okay? And you have uh, unclement weather, right? Yeah. So that's something that you might think about, right? And nobody's going to talk about a novel being a kind of a cultural changer, right? Yeah. And actually, that's what's happening. Slowly, the novel and the whole idea of reading, of course, you can get two reactions. Some people not wanting to read at all, right? Because... They're very scared that they will be polluted or they will be changed because of what they read. Yeah? And that's again a Western preoccupation. We've talked about the history of the novel. That's again a Western preoccupation of what is happening after the sorrows of young Wertham, right? How do you get influenced by a novel? So that's an idea that's already there, right? Now I 
and you and none of us can say that Jane Austen is deliberately doing this, right? That's not true. And if you do that, we are irresponsible critics, right? Yeah. So is he writing about this for the colonies? No, that's not true, right? You can talk talk about uh, Fanny Parks. You can talk about all the kind of diaries that are written or, uh, and the novels that are written by people who come to India, and they are actually uh, they're not particularly or they're not in the pay of the British government to do that but they've got that indoctrinated into their system right yeah so first and foremost we can't help the fact that we are post-colonial right yeah and I hate all the things that are said in the novel right but they're very interesting right and how the portrayal of a, of a lot, lot of people about themselves work right uh, that of course you might look to the Bengali novel you might look to the Malayalam novel, you might look to the Gujarati novel, right? The early Gujarati novels, all the early, very no early novels, right? Because they're based on a lot of these kinds of uh, novels that were available and the English novel, right? Very few people would read Spanish and very few people would read German and French, right? Yeah, I, I'm not saying that there were none, right? But the, the, the direct influence of French, German, uh, Dutch, uh, all those other kinds of Spanish, right? That would take, uh, even now I don't think you have that kind of a person who's reading Latin American novels in Spanish and uh, writing in Marathi or Gujarati or uh, Malayalam. I don't, I don't even know if there are people of that kind, right? Yeah, but maybe they are, maybe a small minority. They're not enough to talk about, yeah? And so that may be a fault that we have, right? But. Uh, when we read all these kind of cultures which are not our culture, it's important to read them, right? Because how do we learn from somebody else's culture, right? So uh, the extremists would say, well, don't, don't study English literature, right? Why should we study English literature? We have our own English literature. But your own English literature hasn't got the, the roots of its own. The novel is a form that is not an Indian form, right? Yeah. In Marathi, they call it Kadambari, right? And that's from the first novel in Marathi, right? And that's the, the word that is used for novel, right? Yeah, so, uh, so the question is, do we say, don't read in English literature, don't read the English novel, only read Indian novels which are written in regional languages, right? So that's a kind of uh, a cultural stance that uh, we have people who are called nativists who take up, right? And uh, the argument falls on its head because how can you do that, right? Okay, when you talk about the sonnet and you talk about the, the Gujarati sonnet and you talk about the sonnet, sunnit in Marathi, right? We find that people are adapting it from uh, English, okay? Not even, uh, it's yeah, in English in the Romantic age, right? Yeah, it's not even taken from Italian. And of course, the sonnet, as you know, travels from Italy to Spain to France to England and to other parts of the world, right? Yeah. So you have that kind of cultural uh, traveling which is a form which is culturally traveling around, right? And when we know about the novel, yeah, the novel begins with uh, Don Quixote, right? Begins with uh, Lasage, okay? Begins with uh, the idea of the Picaro and the Picaresque, right? 
the epic, right? And out of all that, a novel is evolving, right? And these, this novel is one of the novels that is at quite a late stage in, uh, it's not really very early, right? Uh, there are already people have written novels, right? And uh, things are changing, right? Walter Scott is already there, right? And he's writing a different kind of novel, which is called a historical novel, right? Who some people think that it's ended, right? But uh, how do you respond to the novel I put up on your group that's called uh, Brished or Outcast, right? Yeah, I put it up and it's by Kunja Kutan. Please read it, right? It's an important novel to read because it's historical and it's actually talking about what happened in India, right? And it's talking about social customs of marriage, right? Alternative customs of marriage, right? Uh, and cohabitation, right? To, uh, of course, you have uh, a law which says adultery is knocked off and that's a British law and all those kind of things, right? Uh, that's uh, recently done in uh, 2018, right? Yeah. But at the same time, you have the custom of cohabitation, right? Contractual marriages, right? All those kind of things you'll find over there, right? So, uh, when you're looking at this novel that we're talking about, at one level we have to look at how the English are shaped, right? Okay, and we do not really know what the source of income is for the family of the Woodhouses, right? What is the position of Woodhouse that we probably will come to know, right? At a certain later point in the novel, right? We do know about something called primogeniture, right? That is, the eldest sons, eldest sons, eldest sons, eldest sons gets an accumulation of wealth and property, right? And that's shown between the two knightlies, George and John, right? Yeah, and the idea is that uh, George, uh, uh, George Knightley is not uh, married, at least in the earlier part of the novel, right? Yeah. So, yes, uh, I had a question regarding, yeah, oh, that, yeah, somebody's asked a question, just look at it. I had a question regarding the requirements of being a gentleman. Uh, if a rich non-gentleman's non-son inherits huge sums of money, will he be called a gentleman? Right. Yes, uh, a very, very good question. Who is a gentleman? Yeah. Now, one of the things is, uh, yes, and you've asked a very important question. Uh, first of all, when people ask me who is a gentleman, right, I would normally say a gentleman is a big crook, right? Yeah, that's how we look at it, right? Because of how much wealth you've been able to accumulate, right? We can think of all our, our rich businessmen in India who have, of course, are parlaying with the government and that's why they become very, very rich and they're, they're subverting all the national institutions like the BSNL, etc., right? Uh, we know all those things, we know all those stories, right? But the question is, uh, the idea of the aristocrat. Hmm? The aristocrat is a person who doesn't have to work for his living. Yeah, you'll get that in Rochester, uh, in uh, in Jane Austen, uh, Jane Eyre, right? Yeah, so you'll get Rochester, who's an aristocrat, right? So the the uh, and you get that also in uh, Eliot, uh, George Eliot's novel, 
Silas Manor, right? Uh, where you get the two brothers, right? And the idea of the uh, the typical aristocrat. We have a number of them in literature. Wordsworth is one of them, right? A very uh, uh, he doesn't have to do anything for his living, and that's why he can do something called write poetry and think about poetry and all those kind of things, right? Yeah. And of course, his parents die when he's very young. I think by the age of nine, the parents die, right? And uh, uh, they're brought up by maids, etc., right? So, uh, yeah, and of course, the, the typical kind of gentleman or the aristocratic gentleman would take a poor person, right? A poor girl, a poor village girl, that's the story, and that's the kind of stereotype that has been built up, uh, uh, and you get it in a lot of fiction, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, have uh, induce her into marriage and then dump her, right? Yeah. So, have a sexual relationship and she'd fall in love. Uh, the chance meeting and all those kind of things, yeah. And many of them would just dump the person because the uh, the, the thing that uh, this woman says over here, she should marry an equal, right? Yeah. So when all the the mating rituals go on, there's no question of equality, right? Yeah. The equality comes after that when you say, well, we have to talk about marriage, and marriage is about equality, and uh, economic equality and social equality and all those kind of things, right? Yeah, and uh, this uh, so there's a whole biological thrust to that, and that's when the gentleman uh, normally is a suspicious character, right? Yeah, because he has all the wealth, he has all the property, right? And socially, he is what you call sowing wild oats, right? That is going around the place and trying to get as many women as he can, right? Yeah, so that's uh, typically what is happening at this point of time. Yeah, and the question of being a gentleman, uh, yeah, if not a gentleman's son inherits a huge sum of money, yeah, will he be called a gentleman? Yeah, yes, of course, over a period of time, he will be called a gentleman, right? Yeah, and uh, uh, that's where the cult this is where we're talking about class. Yeah, so the idea of gentlemen and uh, that also happens in India, right? Yeah, and what happens normally is when people jump class, and uh, a very, very good question. Smith has asked that question, right? When uh, people jump class, right? Either you jump class, uh, I was teaching uh, Chaucer's and Caxton's English, right? So you can look up your social history of England. And uh, there is no way of jumping class except by uh, you have the journeyer, right? Then you have the skilled artisan, and then you have the master craftsman, right? Yeah. So that's the kind of medieval formation that they have in England, right? And the one of the ways of uh, becoming the master craftsman, right, or achieving proprietorship of the kind of establishment that people had, yeah. Uh, either you get into apprenticeship, become become a journeyer, then you become a craftsman, right? And then you become a master craftsman. But that's after years of working for a person, right? And that's when you, you move from the idea of a feudal system to a capitalist system, right? Uh, that's all there in Trevelyan, so please read your Trevelyan. And if you want, uh, I'm doing that for the first year BAs, right? Yeah, so this is a system that doesn't change for a long time. Smith, I'm answering your question. Sorry for taking you around a lot of history, right? Yeah, so 
uh, what we are doing is that's taking a long time, right? And this whole idea is still a very important practice in Germany, right? Yeah, this idea of uh, the apprentice, the apprenticeship, right? Yeah, so the idea of apprenticeship is something that a lot of people have. You learn the trade from working with somebody, right? And then after some time, you get to a higher position because of your skill, right? And then you get even higher when you become uh, a master craftsman or there's something about you that makes you very, very skilled, right? Then you move off on your own and you can start your own business and hire an apprentice yourself, right? This is how the doctors work and we've got two people over here, Mr. Wingfield and uh, Mr. Perry, right? Yeah, who are the doctors, right? Yeah, so these are people who have people working with them and uh, uh, as what you what later would be called compounders, right? Uh, that is uh, making a different compounds, right? I don't know if you've seen these doctors uh, who uh, are licentiates or something of the sort, right? They're not MBBS, right? Uh, and a lot of them have a lot of different kinds of mixtures that they should give us, right? So they've got a mixture for cold, they've got a mixture for, and they've got their own code names, right? Uh, yeah, so, so till the 1970s, you still saw a lot of these people and this hardcore kind of uh, Western medication uh, of allopathy hadn't happened, right? Yeah. So uh, here you have the apothecaries over here in the north, right? So the idea, of course, is uh, marriage is one of the means of acquiring wealth, right? So uh, when we're talking about uh, the rich girl marrying the poor boy, uh, that's a kind of situation that actually changes a lot of the demographics of the country, right? Yeah, and now uh, who would actually do this, right? So that's why you get Richardson's Pamela, which is actually talking about the the law of primogeniture and how a person is made into a servant, maid, or a poor relation, right? Because they can't, they don't have any means of survival, right? The, the industry that the English have is only the wool industry and the cloth making industry and everybody doesn't do that, right? So it's an agricultural country and if you move to the city and you have a large family, which many people did because life expectancy was very short till about 100 years ago, right? Yeah, so most people are expected to die by the age of 50 and that doesn't include, uh, the. Uh, it, it doesn't make a difference between poor and rich people, right? Even you are rich, you had a number of children for the simple reason that even if you were the king and the queen of England, uh, your children could die because of a epidemic or any kind of disease and we didn't have this kind of modern medication, right? So we have to take a lot of factors and that why, uh, that's why your question is uh, well received, right? Because they're actually talking about how does this thing operate, yeah? So you have a lot of children and then you don't have means of looking after them economically, right? And some of them last longer, right? Though economically poor, right? And maybe an upper class person uh, might lose all their children and only one child remains or no children remain, right? So all those kind of very strange combinations happen, right? And then there are people who have rich relations, like you have examples like Tess, uh, you have Fanny Price in um, in Mansfield Park, right? Yeah, that's by Jane Austen, who is what you call a pro, poor relation, right? 
the whole term called a poor relation is because you have the law of primogeniture, the rich, the first sons, uh, the eldest son gets all the pro property, right? And when you read that book, Outcast, only the eldest son is allowed to get married, right? The other, uh, the other, that's in the Namudri uh, community, in the, the highest of the high Brahmins, right? Yeah. So the rest of them are just supposed to cohabit with other people and that's when the contract marriages take place, right? So the idea of marriage and how marriage looks, that may be something that you can get into, right? But what happens in uh, England is that you get people who inherit a lot of wealth, right? And that's what Dickens does in his uh, Great Expectations, right? Yeah, so the idea of language, right? And uh, who's the real father and who's, who's actually funding the education of whatever that guy's name is, right? Yeah, uh, uh, so you get the, those kind of things happening, right? So would he be called a gentleman? Yes, right? Because the gentleman is associated with property and money, right? Yeah, and of course culturally you might have had a problem with them, okay? Because you, uh, the idea of being a gentleman is can you eat properly with decency and politeness? We're talking about two different things, right? One is giving an economic status which gives you the status of a gentleman, yeah? And in our novel we have this man called Robert Martin, right? And Robert Martin is what you call a, a, a gentleman farmer, right? Yeah, so you talk about, so you've got a, a, a person who's a gentleman farmer, that is, he's actually hiring out people to work on his land, right? They are not uh, typically the feudal uh, kind of people, right? And if you read uh, Trevelyan, he'll tell you how uh, the feudal lords slowly change with uh, cap and capitalism comes in at the grassroots in the UK, right? Yeah, in England, right? So you might like to look at all those issues, right? Now, uh, so to answer your question again, when we're talking about the gentleman at one level, and that's what's going on over here, right? You're looking at Mr. Bob Martin, and you said, well, he's not quite the person we want, right? Because he might have the property, right? But he doesn't have culture. You get that? Yeah. And that's an issue that we have to think about, right? Especially because in India, we work with very complex issues. Like we have caste and we have class. And both of them are operating, right? And if you like, you can read uh, this book, uh, this uh, little short story. And the, uh, the commentary by Gayatri Spivak Chakravarti. Right? It's called Skandaini and it's written by Mashweta Devi, right? where you get this Brahmin man who is at the temple selling samosas. Right? And it's, it's got different kinds of ways of operation. Uh, Mashweta died recently and when she came here, uh, we had a session with her. We went to Professor Devi's house right? and uh, we sat down and talked to her. And that's a different thing. But when we get to Skandaini, it's called the breast giver. right? And this is a novel which is actually taking on the subaltern. And that's how Gadri Spivak interprets the novel, right? Uh, the short story, it's, a, it's actually a novella. It's a long short story, right? 
Yeah. So you get uh, the idea that here you have a woman. Uh, so this man is at the temple. He's a samosa seller. He's a Brahmin, and uh, he gets knocked down by a car, right? And he can't work anymore. So the woman has to get it, right? Now he becomes. He's a subaltern, not because of his caste, but because of economic position, right? And uh, yeah, and then the woman is a subaltern because it's a patriarchal world, right? Yeah, no matter how how uh, established women are in a patriarchal world, all women are subalterns. They don't have the absolute power, right? Yeah, so that is something that comes across in the novel, right? And of course here. She has to make the family uh, survive, and she uses a body, right, to lactate, right. To uh, so she, first of all, she has to get she has to get pregnant again and again, because otherwise she won't lactate, right. She won't be able to be a breast giver or a wet nurse to all the upper class people, right? Yeah, and that's why it's a very important kind of a story to look at, because when we're talking about the gentleman, right. The gentleman is this kind of person who's acquired a lot of wealth, not from himself, but from his ancestors, right? So uh, your question is, if a person acquires acquires a, a lot of wealth from the ancestors, he's called an aristocrat and he's called a gentleman, right? Yeah. Of course, the aristocracy in Britain is uh, associated with also titles like the noble, the noble, and uh, sir, and all those kind of state the baron the baronet yeah so you have all those kind of hierarchical statuses which are linked up with the king and the royal family yeah so that's a different thing yeah uh, and of course uh, yes if people get a lot of wealth or inherit a lot of wealth and become very wealthy yes they are called gentlemen right and that would be of course in a day in a age which is past right because today the world has changed right and we are definitely not what we were uh, neither in india nor anywhere else right uh, the world is different yeah and uh, the idea of if somebody gets wealth suddenly right then you become very suspicious right yeah if somebody suddenly gets wealth you become suspicious right so either people can get wealth through marriage right you marry a rich girl or you marry a rich boy or whatever that is right and that's how you get a lot of wealth right and maybe that's a problem right and some people uh, so you have this idea of family status coming from a great family and all those kind of things not really the caste status but this is what ha happens in the uk right you talk about family lineage and culture it's not about having money it's talking about having uh, educational jobs or some kind of socially respectable jobs and doing something for the country and everybody knowing you and all those kind of things so that's the kind of lineage that they're talking about right uh, the next thing that we're talking about is actually so that's when you might call somebody a gentleman because he's got a very high position right normally the British don't give the high position to anybody it will be somebody from the royal family right or some rich uh, some very uh, important uh, kind of uh, aristocrat right a baronet or whatever that is right uh, so they give all these positions to them right so uh, when you say that you related to somebody of that sort then it doesn't necessarily imply money though money is 
an important consideration because when you got all these kind of government jobs then you got uh, you also get uh, got very rich in the uh, just because not because of corruption but because the the government job gave you a lot of wealth right so uh, that's uh, how we uh, pitch uh, for your question right so we are talking about how a government job gives wealth right and uh, how do we uh, how do we actually talk about being a gentleman right uh, maybe i would suggest that you uh, might like to read uh, a play by oscar wilde called a woman of no importance right and in oscar wilde's woman of no importance you can see how the english system works right and it's a critique of this idea of uh, hegemony uh, the idea of family connection all those kind of critiques are over there right and so is this right of course this is more subtle right oscar wilde is more direct right and he's talking about a, a ill that you have oh sorry okay i'm sorry i will stop right yeah i will stop and we'll get back again i'm sorry smith if i've not answered your question or oh, yeah and we'll have another class uh, 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 the head of the department told me that we are having a new timetable so if we can then we'll have a class tomorrow right if the new timetable permits us to have classes right then we'll have a class tomorrow right because i think uh, i'm accused of doing a, a wrong thing by shifting the class to 9 o'clock but i did that because uh, we ne i need some energy to conduct the class okay thank you Yes. 